All right, we are in Mark 14. Uh, we're going to be at, starting at verse 53, right after the streaker um, in 52. Mark the streaker, most likely. Um, 53 starts, so here's what's happened if, if, you, if you weren't here last week. Jesus has, was in the garden with his disciples. He asked three of them to watch and pray. They couldn't do it. Um, the rest of them uh, couldn't do it. And then when, uh, then when Judas betrays him, the, the, the town shows up with clubs and sticks and weapons and this big mob and Jesus is arrested and the disciples flee. And so now Jesus is being taken to um, the high priest's court in, in 53. So I'm, I'm going to need a reader. Anyone? Anyone? Nobody wants to read. Okay. All right. Sarah, you can read after Anthony. We will alternate. We'll alternate. Okay. How about that? So, Anthony, I'll let you read the first two verses. And then I'll give her more verses. Anyway. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself by at the fire. Okay. So you have Jesus taken to the high priest. So in in, in the other gospel accounts, um, you have one of them mentioning that they took, took him to Annas. Um, who was the old high priest and is actually the father-in-law of Caiaphas in this case. And so um, some believe that he would have been the first to kind of interrogate, interrogate him. And most likely he's, he's questioning Jesus while Caiaphas is assembling the council. Um, and, and then, you know, Mark, in, in typical Mark fashion, he just skips all the peripheral stuff and jumps right to this heated discussion that, that's about to happen between um, Caiaphas and Jesus. But so he's being taken to, to the, high, the high priest Caiaphas and his court. And, and remember, this is in the middle of the night. So most, most times trials don't happen in the middle of the night. Most things can wait till the next day. And also, um, we're in the middle of the Passover. This is the middle of a feast. And trials don't happen on feast days. And so the fact that this is in the middle of the night, the fact that this is happening on the feast day shows the um, the priests and the scribes and the Sanhedrin their their expediency to try to get Jesus um, uh, in, in trial and ultimately convicted. Um, Peter is following here at a distance. You see, um, you're going to see Peter's kind of bookend this this story that's about to happen. He's mentioned here at the beginning, and then and then in our section he'll he'll uh, he'll be mentioned here at the end. But Peter's there, and so you gotta you gotta be wondering what Peter's thinking. Like what's going on in his head? I mean, he he's he he proclaimed over and over and over, Jesus. Even if these other guys fall away, these losers follow, I'll never. And like, oh really, Peter? And then of course he does. And then he goes to fight for Jesus, and Jesus says, "Put that away." And then he runs. And then at some level, he's lurking in the distance. He's following in the shadows. And he ends up following them to the court, and he stays outside, warming by the fire. The word fire is actually literally in the Greek the word light, and so it's interesting that you'll see um, 
kind of in, if you if you see all the different gospels put together, you see this interplay of Jesus of Peter in the light and then in the darkness, um, back and forth. And um, so you got to be wondering what's going on in Peter's in Peter's mind. And we'll come back to him in just a second. So Sarah, read fifty five through fifty nine. but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another, not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Okay, so here, here, three things I want to I highlight for you. One, that they found no reason to put him to death. Mark, Mark makes that clear. And so Mark is... is is highlighting the fact that this is not an issue of justice. Like this is not a um, judicial system or, or event that's happening. This is purely these guys wanting to take Jesus out. They, they can't find a reason to, to put him to death. They have no reason. And they're going to break all kinds of normal protocol in order to get this conviction. The second thing I want to point out is where it says they bore false witness. It says that twice actually. It says that, that they, they bore false witness against him. Um, so what exactly does that mean? How did they do that? Doesn't, doesn't what they claim Jesus say, doesn't that sound a little familiar? Mm-hmm. So, so here's, here's what's kind of taking place. This one took me a while to, to figure out what was going on. I didn't quite understand. Well, it sounds like something Jesus said and would say. And so what's the big deal? Well, in, in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 13, it says... Jesus, the, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, look at this temple. Isn't it beautiful? Aren't these rocks, whatever, beautiful, these stones, beautiful? And Jesus says, um, he says, do you see the, this, these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's speaking of a coming judgment and a coming destruction that's going to take place. So that's the only thing in Mark that's remotely close to what they claim that he said. In fact, in, in the synoptics, it's the same thing. The synoptics doesn't have this line of if you destroy this temple, I'll build it again, build it, raise it again. Um, or I will actually, yeah. So, so the synoptics don't have him mentioning any kind of rebuilding a temple. They just um, they just have him mentioning that this this temple is going to be destroyed. So it's a little different deal. The the issue isn't in the rebuilding. The issue is in the destruction. The fact that he's claiming a destruction is coming, they're twisting and saying, he's saying he's going to destroy it. And to say he's going to destroy the temple is the, the card, is the trump card, is the thing that they're saying, this is what we have against him, this is what we have against him. In John chapter 2, when Jesus goes in at the beginning of John's gospel, he goes in and, and, and uh, cleanses the temple, turning over tables. We believe he actually does that twice. Because in John's Gospel, it happens at the beginning. And in Mark, in the synoptics, which synoptics, by that, by that I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they're similar um, in, in their writing style and in their accounts. And in the synoptics, Jesus cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry. So we believe he most likely did it twice. Um, in, the, in John's Gospel, it says, Jesus says these words. He says, destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, John's Gospel goes on to explain what Jesus meant by destroy this temple is, he was referring to his own body. 
And then it says, the disciples remember this when he had died and rose again. That he was referring to. So, so they, they knew what he's talking about. But notice he, he doesn't say, I will destroy this temple, pointing at a temple. He's saying, you destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And so it's a, it's a different deal. The synoptics never mentions Jesus saying he's going to destroy the temple and never say, and never mention he's going to raise it up. So what, what Mark is highlighting is they're, they're putting in, um, they're, they're lying about what Jesus said. They're twisting what Jesus said. He never claimed that he would do that. The third thing I want to point out is it says that their testimonies do not agree. So, in other words, what's, what's most likely happening, even though he only, they only quote one person, um, what's most likely happening is, is people are coming in and they're shouting, he said this and he said this, and, and Mark picks one. He picks one example, I think, is probably what's happening, that isn't true. But all of them are saying different things, yet it's kind of similar, and they don't match up. They don't line up. Um, their testimonies do not agree. So, Jesus is on trial. And, and in Mark's Gospel, um, actually when you put all, all the Gospels together, there are what we believe to be six trials. He goes to Annas. He goes to Caiaphas. He goes to the Sanhedrin, which would be kind of the overarching group. And then he goes to Pilate, and then to Herod, and then back to Pilate. And that's when he's crucified. Mark Moore in, his, um, in this book he has on, on kind of on the life of Christ, he says that, that uh, he lists 11 major breaches in justice that, that the, uh, the, Jew, the Jewish and the Roman kind of law prohibited. So, he, first of all, he was arrested through a bribe. He was arrested without a clear charge. Um, trials could not be held at night or on a feast. Um, they used physical force to try to intimidate Jesus during the trial. Uh, false witnesses offered conflicting testimonies against Jesus. Um, number six, witnesses were not supposed to testify in the presence of one another. Um, and so there was no integrity in that, in, that, in that sense. Jesus was asked to incriminate himself. Jesus was not given the opportunity to cross-examine the witnesses. The high priest never um, asked for a vote from the Sanhedrin. Um, which would have started with the youngest and then moved to the oldest. Uh, he was charged two different things. One, first, in the Jewish court, he was charged with blasphemy and temple violation. And then when he goes over to Herod and to Pilate, he's charged with um, claiming to be king, causing disturbances, and not paying taxes. So they, they, they changed the, the accusation. Um, and then he was convicted and executed on the same day he was tried. So all these things were things that was not common, was not protocol in, in, in what, what we believe to be like first century um, law and the way it was practiced back then. And so you see Mark is, is wanting to highlight um, like these guys are on a mission. And we've known this, like statements like this have been mentioned already. They set out to kill him. They, they tried to figure out a way in which they could, they could kill him. Um, and Jesus knows this is coming. So, Anthony, read 60 through 65. And the high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. 
Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the powers, and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him of deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now, there's, there's three questions I want to answer that I think this text answers for us. One is, why, why would Jesus be silent? Two is, um, why, did, why did the high priest throw such a hissy fit when Jesus said what he said? Like, why was that such a big deal? Um, and then third, why is Jesus not a good guy if what he says is not true? Um, so, so I want to tackle each of these. Jesus likely is silent for a couple reasons. One, their testimonies don't match up, and so he doesn't need to respond when, when they're th- making up false accusations and they don't even line up with what they're saying. He chooses not to respond. Um, it's clear uh, that he expected, he knew this, he, he'd already told the disciples three times, listen, I'm going to be turned over to the, to the leaders and they're going to kill me. And so he knew he knew, he knew their heart, he knew their intentions from the beginning, and there wasn't a need to try and defend himself. And in doing these two things, in doing this, by remaining silent, he, he actually fulfills Isaiah 53, where it says that he would remain silent. Um, the high, pe- high priest's question is, a, is an interesting one. He says, kind of enough, um, have you no answer? Uh, and he says, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? The Matthew account says the Son of God. And actually, this is the first time that word, those words, the Son of God or the Son of the Blessed One, have been mentioned by anyone, any human, actually. Uh, a demon has mentioned it, and um, a voice um, from, from heaven, God's voice, has mentioned it. But this is the first time that like, the, the phrase Son of God or Son of the Blessed One is being uttered by a human, and it happens to be the high priest, and he's going straight for the jugular. Are you claiming to be God? That's his question. Is not, are you the chosen one? It's like, are you the Christ, and are you claiming to be God? Because he already has. And, and so Jesus' answer is kind of a big deal. First he says, I am, which, uh, what, what would be, what would be a, um, a reference in that statement, the I am? Okay, Exodus 3, when, when God introduces his name. So there's a connection there. Um, you, have, you have what Jesus says is, is pretty interesting. Basically, he claims to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the coming King. So he agrees with Caiaphas' question, I am. So there's this divine admission, which is very clear. So, some believe that Mark, that, that you know, these things are kind of made up, and, and or uh, Mark. Liberal scholars believe that Mark's gospel is the first, and then Matthew gets a little more, and then Luke gets a little more exaggerated, and then John just goes crazy with these statements, and so they they want to say that 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 Mark Mark is most likely the first first author, and and it just got exaggerated as it went on, but in reality, Mark's gospel is the one that's most clear in this statement. If you look at all the different the different times when Jesus is is questioned. What, what Jesus says in Mark's account is most clear. 
He says, I am. Um, and, then he re- and then he says this statement. He said, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and, and coming with clouds of heaven. He's referencing two scriptures, two very key scriptures. First one is Daniel 7. And um, if, you, if you have a second, actually I want you to turn there. I want to read that real quick. Daniel 7, uh, around, around 13. This is the, the reference for the Son of Man. Anytime the Son of Man's reference um, happens, it's, it's referencing this, this mysterious figure, this king-like figure that would come in dominion and rule. So starting in verse 13, Daniel seven thirteen, it says, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like, like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, which we've already established in, that, in, in Daniel 7 is God, the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus claims to be the Son of Man coming on the clouds, he, this is what's behind that. This is not just a, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. This is like, you're, you're the mysterious Son of Man figure that's going to come and rule and, and reign with dominion and judgment. And the answer for Jesus is yes. And then he says, seated at the right hand. Um, so turn to Psalm 110. This is the other reference. Psalm 110 is the most quoted um, chapter, Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. The New Testament quotes Psalm 110 more than any other Old Testament reference. It's Jesus' favorite psalm, we know, that he quotes, uh, because it is a royal psalm. So, in other words, th- this, this psalm is depicting a royal king uh, that's going to come and rule. And, um, and you can see down, first of all, in, in verse 4, the, the phrase, you are a priest in the order after Melchizedek. If you are with us in our Hebrew study, you know that Melchizedek was this mysterious priestly king that came out of nowhere. Um, from He was a priest and king of Salem. And, and, and Abraham meets him on this road, and Abraham pays him a tithe. And then this guy disappears. He was, a, he was like a priest of the Most High God. And... and Nobody knows where he came from. And he was, he was there before Abraham. And so people go, well, who is this Melchizedek? And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is not a priest in the order of, or, or of Levi. Levi. Um, he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's one like no other. So then, then you see in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He he will uh, shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment a- among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the, the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So, so again, th- this is strong language of Jesus who is claiming to be God, the Messiah who's a coming king who's going to come and rule with dominion and judgment. 
And, and that's who he claims to be. And, and imagine he's standing there in chains most likely and surrounded by the most powerful men in the Jewish community. And this is what he's claiming to be. And it's almost like Jesus doesn't try to soften anything. He just is like, well, here we go. I'm going to announce who I am, and then, it's, and then you're, going to, you're going to kill me. You're going to take me out. Um, let me figure out where I'm at here. Yes. So, it's the, it's the making himself equal with God that causes um, them to get all in a tissy and, and then claim that he's blaspheming. Now, in order to blaspheme two things, you either, to, to blaspheme God, you do one of two things. You either, you either bring God down to earth and make God like human, or you claim yourself to be God and, and exalt yourself up to be um, equal to God. And Jesus did the second, and everyone knew it. And so they beat him, and they mocked him, and then they, um, they mocked him to prophesy. And what's ironic is, is like four prophecies that Jesus has already prophesied are being fulfilled right, right in this moment. Um, first of all, he predicted that he would be handed over to the authorities. He predicted that he would be betrayed by his disciples. He predicted that his disciples would all, fall, would all de- desert him and fall away. And then he predicted that, G- that Peter would deny him three times. And, and most likely what's happening out in the, in, as Jesus is under trial inside, Peter is under trial in the courts. And that very thing is happening right at this moment, and we see it in this next scene. So, Sarah, read 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warning, <coughs> warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Okay. So in, in, in the four Gospels, this, it's really hard to try to piece together using all four to figure out exactly what's happened because most likely um, four of them are, are emphasizing different facts that happened in the night but we know that it was it was dark there was a fire it was the middle of the night um and so you know some have him standing some have him sitting um you know he could have been kneeling who knows which which would have been a a, um a combination of both but what's interesting is is not only is while jesus is under trial inside peter's under trial on the outside but jesus peter has already not been able to keep watch for Jesus like he asked him to three times. Jesus had to come back and rebuke him. Why are you sleeping? So three times he couldn't watch, keep watch. And now three times he's denied him. And I just think it's interesting that, that when Jesus goes to restore Peter in John 21, 
How many times does he ask him the question, do you love me? Three. And there's this. It's almost like Jesus is, is just restoring each of those back. Now, I love this scene. And actually, um, not particularly in Mark, but in Luke, there's something that, that Luke, that Luke um, records that no one else records. And, um, and, it's, and it's this line here where it says, While he was still speaking, this is Peter, while he was still speaking, the rooster crows, crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered saying the saying of the Lord and how he said before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. They think that as Jesus was being um, transported from Annas to, to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin, all with, would, would have been kind of in the same area, that most likely at some point during this is what Luke is describing at some point as he's being transported to the next trial. Um, he hears a rooster crow, and somehow, some way, he turns and he's able to see Peter. Can you imagine that? Like what that moment would look like? At Ozark, um, I remember sitting in, in the library and studying, and uh, at one point looking up, and there's this poster right in front of me. And I, I remember staring at this poster for, I don't know, seemed like forever, because this scene just really, really gripped me. And so I, a couple of years ago, I was teaching on, on this, and I called Ozark and had him send me a picture of, um, of, of this corner in the, in the library. And so you can see this picture. Here's a close-up of it. I don't know who the painter, I don't know who the person who, who, who drew this scene is. Um, but it's kind of interesting that what this would mean. Like, think about what's going on in Peter's mind and, and heart in this moment. Right? He's confused. He's lost. He's just done the unthinkable. Um, he did what he swore he'd never do. And, and so I want us to kind of sit with this for a little bit, for about a minute, uh, and just stare at this painting. And then... Uh, and then I'll, I'll close this out. So what do you do with shame? That's what Drew's going to get up and talk about here in just a moment. All right. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking through this, this kind of last section. Um, and, and as Scott said, kind of dealing with this idea of shame. Uh, there are, 
a, a number of, of strange ironies going on in the middle of Jesus' trial with the Sanhedrin. Um, one of them is something that, that uh, Scott already mentioned, is that at, at the same time that Jesus is having his trial inside, that Peter is having his on the outside of the temple courts. And even in that, it gets kind of interesting that in Jesus' trial, all the witnesses are false, and Jesus is going to be punished and in Peter's, all the witnesses are actually giving true testimony, um, and Peter's going to get away scot-free. Um, another kind of crazy irony is that you have the, the set-up, although not the rightful high priest in Caiaphas, questioning Jesus. Caiaphas basically was kind of appointed, had somewhat through his family bought that position of high priest from the Roman authorities. So you have the... Um, not rightful high priest who is supposed to be the head over all of Israel who is actually accusing the one true high priest of all the universe in that moment. Um, and, and it won't be long until those roles get switched with one other in, in the judgment seat um, in, in front of, uh, yeah, with Caiaphas there standing in judgment. Uh, another um, really strange irony and, and kind of a tragic one is that you have in this very moment when they cover up Jesus' face and they begin to strike him and start yelling, prophesy, prophesy, who hit you? Because it was said that the Messiah was supposed to be able to prophesy. So prove it if you are him. In the very moment that they're striking him saying, prophesy, just outside the door, one of Jesus' prophecies is coming true. Like in that, in that moment, um, He's being proved true in this tragic play of events with Peter that was going on because just a few hours earlier, Jesus had made this prediction. This is Mark 14, starting in 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So just a few hours earlier, Jesus had predicted this very thing, these two things. One is that all the disciples actually would be abandoning him, and that took place in Gethsemane. And the other one is that Peter would deny him, despite um, Peter's um, vehement denial of that, his claiming that that would never happen. I'll die with you before I deny you, Jesus, is what he says. And, and then just a few hours later, we come to this place where where Peter stands in this courtyard, and as Jesus is being questioned by the high priest and standing up strong under the high priest, Peter is buckling under the pressure of the high priest's little servant girl. <laughs> um, and and as, he's, as she's accusing him of these things, he's denying it, trying to get away and avoiding them. And as, as uh, Scott kind of mentioned, there, there might be something interesting that as he does this, he moves further and further from the light. And then it says in verse 71, um, when, when they came to him, it said, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He says, But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Um, ESV says, NIV also says, to invoke a curse on himself. Like, may God strike me dead if I'm lying to you. Actually, the Greek doesn't have an object there for he cursed. It doesn't say who he cursed. And there are a number of, 
number of scholars who think it's a very real possibility that Peter may have actually cursed Jesus' name in that, in that moment of a time as a way of kind of showing. We know that a couple hundred years later, um, I believe it's Justin Martyr who talks about that was one of the ways that they would get, they would try to figure out who was really a Christian or not. They would, to, if you were arrested, um, they would have you curse Jesus' name if you didn't want to die. And, and we know um, from a letter that we found from this governor called Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan that this is the way when they captured these people who were considered Christians, this is the way they could tell if they were Christian or not because they knew that real Christians could never bring themselves to curse Jesus' name, um, which is crazy to think if, if that's what actually happened with Peter. Um, and so he curses, and then it says there at the end, um, and immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Luke says that the Lord looks up and looks at him in that moment. Um, and, and then it says, And he broke down and wept. That word broke down is kind of a difficult one to translate. We don't know exactly how to. It's epibalo in the Greek um, it's kind of this like casting over, casting aside. It's, it's, it's a violent word. It's, it's a word that's used to describe like waves crashing over the side of a boat, up onto the boat. It's a word that was used earlier in the chapter in 14, let me make sure I get that right, um, in 1446 when they come and seize Jesus when they arrest him. It says they laid hands on him, but the idea is not like, hey, you know, just grabbing, but like an actual grabbing to take him off to prison. They epibalod him. They seized him. And so it's a violent word, and yet this word is used of Peter about himself. He's both the waves and the boat in this, in this phrase. It is him that is collapsing in on himself in this moment, that is tearing apart at himself. And we don't have a word exactly to describe the kind of grief and the kind of breakdown that's taking place in Peter's life as he says these things. Um, it's, it's strange and, it's, and it's, it's sad because of Jesus' disciples, Peter has been the most vocal of all of them about his commitment. And it could be argued probably the most bold of all of the disciples. He's the one who in Mark 8.29, that key linchpin text of Mark, he's the one that makes the key confession. When Jesus asks, who does everyone say I am? And they list off these things and Jesus says, who do you say I am? It's Peter who stands up and says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And, and when, uh, when they come and, and they go after, the, the crowds go after Jesus or that, that mob in Gethsemane comes to get him, it's Peter who stands up against a mob with swords and clubs. It's Peter the one who pulls out a sword and is ready to defend Jesus in front of all of them. And, and it's only Peter and John who, yes, they all scatter when Jesus gets arrested, but Peter and John work up the nerve to follow him back to the high priest's courtyard to see what goes on. It's Peter who, when Jesus says, you're all going to fall away, stands up and says, never, Lord, I would never do that. I'll, I'll never leave you. Stay true with you to the end. He is the one who is doing all these things, and he's not being deceptive when he does those things. He means it. He believes this. He loves Jesus deeply, and he is deeply committed to him. And I believe that Peter, when he says, I will never deny you, I would die first, I believe he means that with all his heart, and that he could not fathom a moment in which he would deny Jesus to save his own skin that that would have been 
unimaginable to him, unfathomable to him, the idea of doing it. And just a couple hours later, he's doing that very thing. The thing that he, he could not see as even a possibility, he finds himself doing. And Mark says that when he does it, and he hears the rooster crow, he remembers what Jesus said to him, that you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And I also wonder if, I don't know, but if another one of Jesus' statements rolls through Peter's mind as he, as he makes eye contact with Jesus, and that would be Jesus' statement in Mark 8.38, that whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this wicked generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory with the angels. I wonder if Peter is thinking about that and wondering what that's going to mean for him and what that's going to look like for him at some point. I cannot, um, I cannot fully get my mind around the grief that's taking place in this moment, in this picture. I can't fully get, get myself wrapped around what it would have looked like to go to your lowest point in your life, to deny um, your Lord and Savior, and at that very moment catch His eye um, as you're doing those things, and the grief that must have just overwhelmed Peter in that, in that moment. I cannot get my mind fully around it, but I think I can get close. Um, because truthfully, like I haven't been there, but I've been there. Like I know, um, I know what it is like to do things that I could not imagine doing before. Things so low that, that I was shocked and devastated by my own sin and the way that I would go about those things. I have, um, said things to my kids, um, that I could not imagine myself saying before I was a parent, and in a tone that I could not imagine using, and in a way that has covered me in guilt um, after doing those things and wondering how badly I might be wounding them or scarring them. I've looked at things with my eyes that I knew I should not look at and that have just um, overwhelmed me with shame. I have treated my wife in some really wicked ways sometimes, and, and the very person that Christ put into my life that I am to love is He loves the church sacrificially. I have, I have treated selfishly, and I have, I have said hurtful things, and I have I've been selfish in our relationship, and I know, um, I know what it is like um, to feel this kind of pain. I've, I've um, had moments where I've sung praises out to Jesus in the middle of church and, and my great love for Him and my great commitment to Him. And just a few hours later on that same Sunday, I find myself like back in that same habitual sin that I keep running back to. And I, I, I start to question whether like what I was really singing a few hours ago was real or not. Um, or if I'm, just, if I'm just fooling myself and everybody else. Um, I've I've been in the middle of preparing sermons before, preparing lessons, like studying the Word of God so that I can bring it to the people of God to teach them. And in the middle of my sermon prep, found myself like so deep in sin um, that I don't, know, I don't know how to continue preparing this sermon. Like I, don't, I don't even have uh, the capacity to move through the guilt of the, the thing that I've just done. 
and to continue studying God's word to go teach it. This feeling of hypocrisy kind of overwhelming me in that. Um, so I can't imagine fully what Peter's going through, but I can get close. And, and my guess is that you can get close too. And my guess is that probably most of you have had an experience similar to this um, or maybe you, you come back from like a week of camp or conference or missions trips and you have never felt closer to Jesus and so ready to go out and live for Him. And like the day you get back, you find yourself in an argument with your parents or someone you love saying something so deeply hurtful that you wish you could take back the moment it comes out. Um, and going like, what is wrong with me? Why do, I, why do I act like this? Why do I do these things? Or maybe you've gotten involved in a relationship with a boy or girl and, and one that started with the greatest of intentions. And the reason I love this person so much is because they love Jesus and they're going to encourage me to love him more. And I love Jesus. I'm going to encourage her to love him more. We're going to walk side by side together and, and grow closer to Jesus together. And then somewhere along the line, that relationship turns sexual and sinful. And, and, and you wake up one morning and don't even know how to like look yourself in the mirror because of the, the hypocrite that you feel like you are and, and the way that it's just not matching up. Your choices with this person are mat, not matching up with the things you said you were going to be all about when you first started. You don't know how to move out of that. My guess is that all of us can get fairly close to this. Have you been in that moment where you feel so guilty that all you want more than anything else is like the presence of God to feel close to Him and simultaneously at the exact same time, that's the last thing you want is the presence of God because you just can't handle it because you just feel too shameful or guilty to be talking to Him or to be near Him at that moment. What do you do when you're in that spot? What do you do when you're like Peter sitting there making eye contact with the one who, who loves you, with the one you swore allegiance to, and yet your life is not matching up with that? When you find yourself committing that sin that like you could not have a year ago even fathomed yourself being in that spot, how do you move out of that? For some of you, that's a question that you face every now and then as you go back to that same habitual sin that seems to keep dragging you down and, and you have to wrestle through that every few weeks. For, for some of you, that's a question um, that deals with a sin that didn't happen last week. It happened like two, three years ago. And, and for whatever reason, you have not been able to make your way through that. You have not been able to get past that. So what do we do when that's us? when we're overwhelmed and paralyzed by shame and guilt for the things that we have committed. What did Peter do in this spot? I mean, if anybody knows what to do, if anybody knows how to move through something like this, it would be Peter, right? Because there's like nobody who's gone from higher to lower and then back up again. So what did Peter do? Well, here's the bad news for you, is that the Gospels really don't tell us much. Don't really say a whole lot about what Peter has done. We know very little about what happens from this moment in Peter's life up until the point that he goes and sees the empty tomb. That's like, we, we, we don't know like anything about how he processed this and how he worked through this and what steps he took. The Gospels don't tell us very much about what, G, what Peter does in this 
Um, and I think that the reason why might be this. Because far more important than what Peter does in this situation is what Jesus does. Because that in the end is, is the only thing that ultimately matters here, is what Jesus does. So here's what Jesus does in this situation. The first thing we see of Jesus is he knows. He knows about this. He knows that Peter's going to do this. Peter might be absolutely shocked at the level that he has fallen to. He may be completely caught off guard by the depravity in his heart that would save his own skin, even if it means abandoning his Lord. He may be completely surprised about that. Jesus is not. Jesus predicted it. Jesus knew it was going to happen. Jesus told him it was going to happen. Jesus is not caught off guard by this. He predicted it, but this is kind of the cool thing. He didn't just predict that. Go back to this prediction. Mark 14, verse 27. Look what else he predicts in there. He says, And uh, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. So this is his prediction. All the disciples will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But here's another prediction. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. In other words, Jesus says this. You will all fall away, but I'll see you again in Galilee. You will all abandon me, but I'm not done with you. I'm not through with you. We're not, we're not finished here. And you're about to go to the, the lowest level in your life, the deepest, darkest place that you think you could go to. But I'm not done with you. I'll see you in Galilee. And, and Jesus um, is not surprised by Peter's sin. And, and, and he's not surprised by your sin. You may be devastated by what you did. You may be completely buried in the guilt and shame, completely devastated. Jesus is not devastated by what you did. He knows, and, and he actually, um, he knew when he saved you about that sin. You think about that deepest, darkest moment in your life, that sin you regret so badly that you could not see coming. Jesus saw it coming when he died for you. Jesus saw it coming in the moment that he saved you, and he still saved you. He still loved you enough, um, even in that, to save you, and that is so huge. So, so. Jesus says to them, I will see you all in Galilee. Here's the question Peter had to be wrestling with, though. After he denies Jesus three times, after Jesus sees him do it, am I still included in that you all? Like, do I still get to be a part of the you that Jesus is going to see in Galilee? And that's what makes what the angels say to the women at the tomb so very interesting. Go ahead and flip over to Mark 16. This is, the the women have come to the tomb, it's empty, they don't know what to do with it, the angel is there, the angels are there, they're speaking whatever to, to the women, and they tell them to go tell the disciples this in Mark 16, 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so I think that's so cool that the angels throw that in there. Um, go tell the disciples, and by the way, Peter's in on this too. Go and tell him that I'm going to see you there in Galilee. And, and so this grace is offered because Jesus is not surprised by Peter's sin. He knows it, and, and he um, loves him anyway, forgives him anyway. Um, so first, Jesus knows. The second thing Jesus does is he remains faithful. 
And by this, I don't mean that he remains faithful to Peter, although that is true. What I mean is he remains faithful to God. He remains faithful to his mission, to his task. And this is one of the best pieces of news for Peter, is that while he is out in the courtyard blowing it, completely failing his trial, Jesus is killing it on the inside. That, that while Peter is completely faltering and falling apart, Jesus is not faltering on the inside in that trial. That Jesus, when, when Peter is weak, Jesus is strong. And, and that Jesus is holding up under the pressure of the trial. And as he's getting falsely accused, and as he could so easily try to find a way to step out of this whole thing, Jesus refuses to do that, and he goes forward with it. It does not matter what is happening in Peter's life. What is happening in Jesus' life is he is still the same strong, faithful Savior and Lord. And that's what matters most for Peter. And this is true for you. You are weak. And, and this is something that, that is the, the ultimate issue. When we sin, when we do something really wrong, like Peter's biggest problem is not that he denied Jesus. Peter's biggest problem is he's got a sinful heart that would deny Jesus. That he's that kind of person. And like my, my biggest problem when I rip into my kids out of anger is not that I ripped into them, but that I have that kind of heart that does those things. Um, but, but Jesus doesn't, and he is strong. And the truth is, yes, we are weak, but your relationship with God and your ability to continue growing does not rest on your shoulders. It rests on the shoulders of one who is strong even when you are weak. This is what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. Those of you guys who were here last year got to read it with us. It talks about Jesus as the high priest. If I can get there. 4, 14 through 16 says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says this, that Jesus is both able to sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted and he never sinned. And those two things were both necessary for him to sit at the right hand of God and be our faithful advocate. And so my, my relationship with God does not depend on me having it together. It depends on this fact that there is one who withstood temptation and is faithful and stands before the throne on my behalf. Number three, Jesus does this. He redeems and restores. And here's the biggest reason that Jesus' faithfulness matters. The reason it matters that he's strong is because that strength led Jesus to go fulfill one other prophecy. Actually, a number of other prophecies, but here's a huge one. Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Peter, you blew it, but... I told you, I told you all the way back several months ago, I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going I'm to pay for that and make things right again with you. So Peter, after he sins, here's what I know. Okay, I, I know this about Peter. I know that he was repentant. And I know that because he breaks down in grief. That's not the number one sign, by the way. The Bible says that you can actually feel really bad for your sins and not be repentant. 
2 Corinthians 7, Paul gives us the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow feels bad. Godly sorrow feels conviction and then changes our lives, uh, seeks to be obedient as a result of that. Peter feels sorrow, but we also know by his life that he changes it, that he conforms it with Jesus, meaning that there was real repentance in him. I know that he was repentant, and that much I know, um, but I don't know all the other things that happened in between. I know this, that Peter did not need to spend hours praying and praying and praying for forgiveness. I know that he did not need to spend an appropriate amount of time feeling bad before he was able then to feel okay again. I know that he did not have to do a lot of good things in order to counteract the really bad thing that he did because it's not him who has to do those things and Jesus has already made Peter right. That Jesus already fixed everything that was going on in Peter's life. Hebrews 10, 13, 14, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, here it is, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 1 John 1, 9, Cling to this one. You need this one um, highlighted, written down in your Bible somewhere. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word just is really interesting because that's not the right word there. The right word is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins. A just judge does not forgive sins. A just judge punishes sins. But John uses that word intentionally, I think, because... That judge, God, did punish your sin. He did it on the cross. Already punished, so he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess him to them. Punished already in Jesus. No more punishment needed for you. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Um, yeah, I'll go ahead and read it. Um, this, is, this is what Paul says about sexual sin. And, and, and in my experience personally and as I have worked with people in ministry, what I find is that sexual sin is like, that's the sin often that tends to cling to us the longest, that tends to hurt the worst, that tends to be the hardest to escape. And so this is Paul talking about sexual sin. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I know you're going, this verse isn't helping, Drew. Um, this is, but this is what he says. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You are not marked by that sin anymore. That's what you were. It's not who you are in Jesus. You were washed and sanctified by Him. None of what I'm saying is meant to downplay your sin or to make light of it like it's not a big thing. It is a big thing. Your sin is a big thing, and it's ugly, and it's awful, and it's huge, but your Savior is bigger than that. And the grace that He offers is bigger than that. And His blood is greater than that. And so, yes, our sin is great, but, but our, the grace that we receive in Jesus is greater than that. So, 
I don't know exactly, exactly what Peter did, but let me just tell you three things you do when you're caught in your shame and you cannot get out. The first thing you do is you repent. That is, you recognize the sin in your life and, and you hand that over to God and, and, and seek to love and obey Him. And in return, the, the, the second thing you do is you confess those sins to God and you confess to whoever you may have hurt by those sins. You confess your sins to those that you hurt. Sometimes it may be necessary or helpful probably to confess to, um, maybe it's a sin that hasn't been hurting anybody. You're looking at stuff online that you shouldn't be looking at. Um, you find yourself wrestling with um, jealousy towards another, uh, another person around, and, and that's something that maybe hasn't even gotten out. It's just been you and yourself and God, and you confess that to Him. Sometimes that's still necessary to confess to someone in the church, to the body, to a, a leader, to a pastor, to a friend, um, just to be able to get that stuff off your chest. But, but you repent, you confess to God and those you've hurt, and that's pretty much it, except for this one thing, and that is you lean into the gospel. You remind yourself of the truth of, of the gospel, of the grace that has been given to you. You read Psalm 103. You read 1 John 1, 9. You read Titus 3, 3 through 8. You read Colossians 1. 21 through 23, and you meditate on those, and you let the truths of the gospel rush over you because there's really nothing else that you can do. You might be saying, I, I hear this one, like, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself for what I've done. Here's the good news. You're not the, you're not the like, almighty judge of the universe. You're not the creator upon who we sin against. You're not the standard by how we ought to live, so you don't have to forgive yourself. You didn't sin against you. And so you're not the one who's in charge of whether you're forgiven or not. That's the good news. The one who's in charge of whether you're forgiven or not says you are in Jesus Christ if you've placed your faith in Him. And that is what we lean into. Um, this is the main thing you do. These three things. But, but I also recognize that, that sometimes this is still sticky. And sometimes this is still really, really difficult. And if that's you, um, then I, I, want to, I just want to let you know that like, Scott, Rachel, myself, um, would love to be able to talk with you and walk you through some of those, some of those things you might be wrestling with in your life. Um, that we're always available for those and, and, and helping you kind of process and, and speak grace into your life even, hopefully. So I hope you'll take advantage of that, um, if so, or, or someone in this room that, that you trust that you can talk through with some of those things. This is the church this is, this is the body of Christ, and, and we bear one another's burdens in that way. So let me pray for us, and we'll be done. Dear Father, I, I thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for Jesus, and I thank you that where my sin runs deep, um, that your grace runs deeper than that. And I thank you for uh, loving me and saving me even when you knew uh, how bad I am and how bad I would be. And uh, God, I pray for this gift for us, that your Holy Spirit would make the gospel more and more real to us and make grace more and more tangible to us. And, and in that, give us a greater gratitude for all that you've done for us in Jesus and give us a, a greater love for him and a desire to obey. And, and when we fail, 
Um, call us to lean deeply into your gospel. Um, I'm asking you this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. We are done. We got, I think we have food. Hang out for a little bit, guys.